In connection with the sermon on Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism, our scripture reading is this afternoon from 1 Corinthians 11. We start reading in verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter, verse 34. And uh, the main part is this about uh, what the Apostle Paul is writing there about the Lord's Supper. So it's Lord's Day 30. We will uh, uh, come back on that again. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, so some of the instructions he gave in, uh, in chapter 10 and first part of chapter 11, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Why? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in the remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this, bre this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if, you would judge our, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. The rest I will set in order when I come. This is the word of God. This afternoon, brothers and sisters, we will again focus on what the Lord teaches uh, about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And this time we will do a specific attention to the consequences of the fact that the supper is called the Holy Supper. It's a holy meal. And we will look at that with the help of Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You'll find that on page 545 of your Book of Praise. That's Lord's Day 30, question and answer 80, 81, and 82. So we will read those, uh, those questions and answers. Question 80. 
What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? Answer, the Lord's Supper testifies to us, first, that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with His true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Question 81, who are to come to the table of the Lord? Answer, those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins. And yet they trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. And to also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their lives. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No. For then the covenant of God will be profaned and His wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and His apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. Uh, thus far, it is uh, part of our confession. Uh, in response to the preaching, let us sing Psalm 116, 7, 9, and 10. Psalm 116, verse 7, verse 9, and verse 10. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how often in a row can you preach about the Lord's Supper without repeating yourself and without your listeners getting bored? Ministers have to face that dilemma every time they are to preach on the Lord's Days 28, 29, and 30. And sometimes ministers decide to make different combinations of those questions and answers. In the past, I've done that too, but as a guest preacher, here and there and everywhere, you go by the order of the inviting congregation. That's all you can do, right? And that brings us this afternoon to Lord's Day 30. Now, of course, we just celebrated Lord's Supper two weeks ago. And, and so the next time will not be too much on your mind yet. It's somewhere in November. But when the time comes you all know that you are expected to prepare yourself for that. Do you usually do that? I mean, you know, you should, right? But that's why the consistency also announces a week ahead of time that it's coming. But in reality, is the Holy Supper on your mind a lot during the week before the celebration? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever? Let's be honest. 
Probably not too much. So you might wonder how you are supposed to do that then. How do you go about that? Your personal preparation before you come to church to take part. We all know the word self-examination. And we read in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul talking about the word examining yourself. We all know it. Now in the past, and maybe some churches still do that, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm not aware of it, but the first part of the form speaks about this self-examination, was sometimes read on the Sunday before it, the preceding Sunday. Now, whatever you may think of that, it is still questionable how effective it is to get people thinking about that for the rest of the week. Now, some may say, so what? But we may have a bit of a problem here. When you read some of the extensive amount of literature that was written in the history of the church, especially by the Puritans, about the Lord's Supper, it is striking how much respect those authors have for the holiness of the Lord's Supper. Now, somewhere along the line, we may have lost some of that respect for the holiness of the Lord's Supper. In bread and wine, God himself, the holy and almighty God, comes near to you. That's, that's awesome, right? That's amazing. And, and it really draws your attention to the holiness of the supper. Now, we live in a, in a casual time. And in our casual day and age, we're not too sensitive for the whole aspect of holiness. But in Lord's Day 30, we are confronted with just that. What is holy? Holy is what comes from God. Holy is what belongs to God. What is dedicated to God, to the glory of God. And so it is good to reflect on this holiness that comes in ordinary bread and wine. So that's the message for this afternoon. The Lord's Supper is holy. Handle with care. We first of all will see the basis for this holiness. What makes it holy? Why is it holy? And in the second place, the personal response to this holiness. What do you do with that individually? And in the third place, the church's respect for this holiness. What do we do with that as a congregation? And it also reflects what we confess in question answer 80, 81, and 82. So the Lord's Supper is holy, handled with care. The basis for this holiness, the personal response to this holiness, and the respect of the church for this holiness. Congregation, you may remember that in Lord's Day 29, last week, we were confronted with the Roman Catholic doctrine of the transubstantiation. That's a big Latin word, and it means that people believe that at the Lord's Supper, the bread and wine change into the real body and blood of Christ. Well, here in Lord's Day 30, your confession comes back on this topic. In question answer 80, it looks at the question, this whole idea, how does that affect the practice of liturgy and worship. What is the difference between how that is being celebrated in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Protestant churches? What's the difference between the Roman Catholic Mass and the Holy Supper of the Lord? Now, in the time that the Catechism was written, it was a really hot issue. You can, you can sense that in the passionate and, and polemic tone of answer 80. 
And it's understandable, because in those same years, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent issued some strong anti-Protestant statements. And one of these was that those who reject the view that bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ are cursed. And so the words accursed idolatry, to say the opposite, ended up in answer 80 of the Catechism, most likely in response to that attack at the Roman Catholic Synod or Council of Trent. Now, one of the Roman Catholic accusations was that the Protestant view that bread and wine remained just bread and wine would take away from the holiness of the sacrament. And, you know, if you've ever seen it, if you've been in a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox Church, you've got to say that that the celebration of the Mass is an impressive event. In front of the church, separated quite a bit from the audience, there's the priest. And at the altar, he breaks the bread, and he speaks the magic words, and he sends with it back to the congregation, he speaks the magic words, this is my body. And when you go to an Eastern Orthodox liturgy, all that happens behind the iconostasis. And iconostasis is a screen in front of the church between the altar and where the people are sitting. So the, 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 the worshipers don't even see it. Ordinary people cannot witness that. It makes it even more mysterious. And then the worshipers kneel down, and they are filled with adoration, and with deep reverence, they worship Christ, the Holy One. He is bodily present in the bread and the wine to be sacrificed at that very moment. So at first sight, what is happening in the celebration of the Mass, either Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, appears to stress the holiness of the sacraments more than what we see in the celebration of the Lord's Supper as we are used to it. But appearances are deceptive. With all its mysterious pomp and circumstance, the Mass does not respect the holiness of the sacrament, but undervalues it. Why is that? Because it denies the real basis for this holiness. And to explain that, a catechism points at a few different aspects. The most important one is this. The practice of the Mass assumes that the work of salvation in Jesus Christ is not complete. His one sacrifice on the cross is not sufficient for your complete forgiveness. The church needs to add something. Something to make Jesus' sacrifice more effective. The church must repeat the sacrifice in a non-bloody form, preferably every day, otherwise there is no real forgiveness. Now, it is not so that they say that Jesus dies again and again to pay for your sins. No, the death of Jesus was a one-time thing. Sure. But what happens in the church is a sacrifice. And it is required to reactivate, so to speak, the sacrifice of Jesus, the first and original one. So, when you think of that, the question comes up, 
What about Jesus' words on the cross? It is finished. Anything that you or the church would need to add to make Jesus' sacrifice more valuable rejects the power of that one sacrifice. The Bible makes very clear that God was satisfied with one sacrifice at Golgotha. Actually, what is being done in those worship services in, from a Catholic and Eastern Orthodox brings you right back into the Old Testament. You, you, you remember that in the Old Testament, numerous offices were necessary for the forgiveness of God's people over and over again, every day. But we no longer need those. God demonstrates His holy love in Jesus' one sacrifice on the cross. This is the love He shows to you in the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper table. Signs and seals of complete forgiveness. Now, there's another aspect that answer 80 mentions. That is, that the Mass directs worship and adoration of God's people at bread and wine. This is supposedly changed into another substance after the words of the priest. But the Lord's Supper teaches you to look beyond the outward symbols. We are urged to lift our hearts on high in heaven where Christ is. We are urged to worship and adore Him. He is our living Savior. To Him you may belong. In Him you may be grafted through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we we don't live in a time of the Reformation. Uh, We live in a different era. So for believers in the time of the Reformation, that whole doctrine behind the Mass was familiar and, and perhaps attractive. But for us today, those whole ideas of what we just talked about are kind of foreign. We would not easily go for that. However, it's still good to be aware of this. Also today. First of all, most of the people in this country, Canada, have a Roman Catholic background. So any form of outreach that you do may get you into a discussion about the differences between the Reformed and Roman Catholics. So you better be kind of aware of what's going on. Now, many of those folks, those Roman Catholic folks today in, 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 in Canada, are secularized Catholics, non-practicing Catholics. They may not even know too much about the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe they don't really care about it either. But it's good that we have an understanding of the official teaching. Also to help people who come to the Reformed faith from a Roman Catholic background. But there's another benefit. There's another benefit of thinking of this and being aware of this. When you think of this, you are forced to focus again on the very center, the very heart of your Christian faith and worship. The reality of the complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. I know, it's so well known. Right? We're so familiar with it. But look at it. Listen to it. Meditate on it. And be impressed by that. And that's the real issue here. Are you impressed by this holy miracle of God's forgiveness? then you will also recognize the holiness of the Lord's Supper. 
But if not, if you take Jesus' sacrifice for granted, if the forgiveness of your sins becomes a matter of course in your life, yeah, sure, you pray for forgiveness of sins, fine. But if you live as if sharing in the love of God is not a big deal, then you will not be impressed by the holiness of the table of God's love. And then the celebration of the Lord's Supper becomes a routine. It's an old, in, in, interesting tradition. But there's nothing to be excited about. But always remember, your and my guilt is a living reality. Your sin Every day, you keep messing things up in your life. That's what we do. We hurt people, and we grieve the Holy God. At the same time, through the blood of Jesus, your forgiveness is also a living reality. So day after day, you may turn to your God. Day after day, you may meet God's mercy. Day after day, you may experience the miracle to have your sins removed, to have your sins forgiven. Are your sins bothering you, my brother, my sister? Come before the Lord every day again. And when you come before the Lord, you take along what bothers you. Humble yourself before Him and put, put all the distress of your rooted sinfulness in His fatherly hands. And then every day again, Stand in awe that there is forgiveness, that there is new forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And the sacrifice of Jesus is so powerful that your Father in heaven will never say to you, hang on, are you there again? Forget it, enough is enough. Never, never. Every Lord's Supper celebration is a stark reminder of that. Are you not impressed by that? How can you not be? For many people today, the qualification of the Mass as an accursed idolatry, then the last words of answer 80, is way too harsh. That's offensive language, you cannot say that. It's, it's at best an uncomfortable remind, reminder from the heat of the battles in the time of the Reformation. But it's more than that. It's also the passionate respect for the real holiness of the Lord's Supper because it reflects God's amazing love and Jesus' one sacrifice. Are you, here's the question, are you willing to use strong language to defend the holiness of what God reveals to you? Even if it may offend other people, it may offend other people when you do that, right? But how impressed are you by it? This will also show in how we personally deal with that and respond to the holiness of the Lord's Supper. In other words, when we participate, when you and I, when you come to the table, when we participate, with what kind of attitude are we doing that? What's the attitude expected from us? Or, and then we come to question 81, who are to come to the table of the Lord? What kind of people should feel free to do that? Participate in the celebration. Is it just a free-for-all thing? Everyone, no exception. Everyone can come. Doesn't matter. Not many people would say that. 
I mean, they can be very generous and open, but most would agree that some people, should, maybe many people should come, but some people should stay away. But the question is then, of course, where do you draw the line? And who is going to draw the line? It sounds easy to refer to the rule we have in Article 61 of our church order. That's a bit formal. Everyone has been admitted to the Lord's Supper by the consistory. That's pretty cut and dry, right? What does that mean? Everyone who at some point in his or her life was admitted by making public profession of faith? Is that the idea? A particular event, a ritual in the past, is that all that you need? It's remarkable that answer 81 does not refer to such an event at all. It doesn't refer to any profession of faith, doesn't refer to any ritual. It doesn't mean it's not relevant. Apparently, it's not enough. So what more do you need then? Now, there are folks who claim that you must be able to testify of mysterious experiences in your life. Special experiences before you may participate. Experiences that give you personal and direct assurance in a mystical way that you have been elected by God. If you don't have those experiences, you better stay away. But again, the Catechism does not mention any of these things. But answer 81 says, when you're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, always remember the holiness of the table. And that requires that you must examine yourself every time again. Even if you made public profession of faith already, now or a long time ago. What does that mean, to examine yourself? Now, people have different ideas about that. Some Christians feel the need to examine their status before God. Am I really a child of God? Well, don't go there. Don't ask yourself, am I really a child of God? I mean, this is how God talks to you in the Bible, right? He addresses you in the promises of the covenant. So why would you question that? Now, the point at stake is, do I really live as a child of God? Let me give you a simple example. If you're going to examine yourself, let's say about your married life, right? Your marriage. You don't question the reality of your marriage. I mean, you don't start looking at your spouse and wondering, am I really married to this man or woman? Well, if, you, if you're going to do that, it's going to be really bad. But the point is, that's not what you do. The issue is, do I live up to my marriage vows? Am I faithful in my marriage? Do I treat my spouse as I should? Your wedding day was an important event, but it was only the beginning. In the same way, your public profession of faith is a one-time thing, an important moment, but it was only the beginning. Every day of your life, you have to live in this faith. That's what you have promised. Now, so don't keep checking whether you are a child of God, but keep checking whether your faith is still a living faith. How do you do that? Now, ask yourself, does my life reflect what I confess in question answer two? Remember question answer two? In question answer two, it says, 
What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of the comfort of belonging to Christ? First, great machine of misery. Second, my deliverance. Third, my thankfulness. So what are we talking about? First of all, you need to remember the seriousness of your sin. Right? It's not just a few mistakes that you make here and there in your life. No, I have sinned. I have sinned. I look at my life, begin every day, end of the day, end of the week, whatever. I look at my life and say, I have sinned. I have said and done a lot of things that were not right. And God is the Holy One. God hates sin. It hurts him. God is grieved by it. He's offended. And, and as Christians, we all agree it shouldn't be that way. But what do you do? We can be upset about many things that bother us. But what about your own sins? Do they bother you? Are you upset sometimes that you have offended and hurt the holy God? Are you truly displeased with yourself because of what your life looks like? But don't get stuck there. You must also trust that your sins are forgiven. Yes, we're still talking about the question, what's your attitude in response to the holiness of the supper? And then these things belong together. True humility because of your sins. And trust of faith at the same time. For the holiness of the Lord's Supper is rooted in what happened at Golgotha. There the Holy God condemns your sin and my sin in the suffering and death of Christ. So be grounded in the reality of Jesus' sacrifice also when facing your remaining weaknesses as the Catechism talks about. Now we do have a lot of those, right? I do, you do. We have a lot of remaining weaknesses hanging around in our lives and they keep popping up. And if God would not protect us, they would take over and destroy our faith. Praise God that all your sins are swallowed up by the sacrifice of Jesus. And that leads unavoidably to the third aspect of self-examination. Do you have the desire to strengthen your faith? Really, is that the desire of your heart? You will need it, sure. But do you want it? Quite often, your faith is not as strong as other people may think, is it? And after all, that's why the Lord has given the sacrament for. And are you willing to amend your life, to change your life? Look at yourself and be honest. In many ways, you will need to change radically before you can say, yes, my life fits the holiness of God. There's no doubt about it. Now, be careful, though. Be careful. The question is not how successful are you going to be in amending your life, because then you're going to look at yourself again. And quite often, there's not something to be proud of. Think again of all those remaining weaknesses. But the point is, do you want to amend your life? Do you really want that? And, and then that leads to the, the next step. Do you realize how much you need the grace of God to make even a small beginning of that? So to sum it up, your personal response to the holiness of the Lord's Supper must be the response of your faith. Humble faith. The invitation to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper must be the response of faith. 
It forces you to reflect on your faith. It confronts you with what it means to live more and more in the world as a child of God, saved by grace. In that way, the holiness of the sacrament is not something to make you avoid the Lord's Supper. That could happen, right? You're so impressed by the holiness of the Lord's Supper, you look at yourself, I can go there. It's not the point. The holiness of the Lord's Supper encourages you to live consciously as a faithful Christian. It urges you to take your sins seriously, to be deeply impressed by what Jesus did. And, and, and it feeds the desire to lead a new life. So when you come to celebrate, you don't need feel real sadness and remorse because of your sin. And the need for your daily forgiveness and renewal is not a big deal. And, and, and so you're not really motivated to change and give up your wrong life. If that's what you're doing, you're despising the holiness of God's table. You reject the love of God. And if you reject the love of God, you will face the anger of God. You eat and drink judgment upon yourself, it says. And these words come, of course, uh, straight from Monkins and G11. They refer to a situation in a church in Corinth. The folks in Corinth were facing God's judgment because they ignored the holiness of the Lord's Supper. And the consequences were disastrous. Many are weak and sick, and a number of them have died. That's a serious warning. God's judgment, that's what you and I have to face if we attend the Lord's Supper thinking we are okay. You don't bother examining yourself properly and carefully. Your confession warns hypocrites and those who do not repent. You can pretend to believe in Jesus. You can do that. You can pretend to serve God in your daily life. While at the same time, if no one is around to check up on you, you just do whatever you want. Is that going to work? It will work with people, right? It's pretty easy to, easy to fool people and make people believe that you're a devout Christian. It's not too big of a deal. You can do that. But you can never fool the holy God. Because he knows what no one else knows. He's there when no one else is there. So let the celebration of the Lord's Supper not clash with what's going on in your life. The holiness of God's table reflects the holiness of God himself. If you don't care about that, he won't let you get away with it. So your personal response to the holiness of the Lord's Supper calls for self-examination. Okay, is that everything? I mean, is this the only thing we should keep in mind to respect the holiness of the table? Imagine this scenario. We celebrate the Holy Supper. On the given Sunday, right? We celebrate the Holy Supper. And in walks a, a man. And he's completely unknown to each and every one of us. No one has ever seen him before. So he walks in, sits down, hears the message, and he says to himself, yeah, I hate my sin. I trust Jesus for my forgiveness. And I want to repent and thanks in my faith. Should he participate just like that? Now, some people may say, yes, sure, 
that's what he feels. And, and whether he, what he feels is true or not is none of our business between him and God. Other people in the church may be a little bit more hesitant about that. Now, here's another scenario. Imagine there's a brother in the congregation, he comes to the table, and, and, and obviously he does not care about self-examination. He leads a sinful life, and he, he, he fosters those sins in his life, and he's quite open about it, and he doesn't care about it, because he thinks it's not a big deal, and a lot of people are knowing about it as well in the church. Should he come and participate? Do we simply say, well, you know what? If he eats and drinks judgment upon himself, that's his problem, not ours. Now, both scenarios, both scenarios remind us that we also celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a congregation of Jesus Christ, as communion of saints by the grace of God, a communion in which we share mutual responsibilities. How impressed are you, am I, but how impressed are we together as church community when we think of the holiness of God and of the Lord's Supper? Yes, we need to respond personally to the holiness of the Lord's Supper. But it implies that we also have a responsibility to respect this holiness together. God's church has a collective responsibility here. Hypocrites in the church are disguised as true believers. That's where you can never find them. You know there are hypocrites around, but they are really invisible. You cannot peek behind human faces. You cannot look into human hearts, right? So you never should do that. You cannot judge what's in somebody's heart. So never try. But if what was hidden in the heart comes out in the open, and what you find is unbelief or indifference, or a life that openly demonstrates disobedience and a lack of faith, that's a different story. If a Christian way of life, submission to the Word of God, rooted in faith, if that is obviously lacking in your life, that says, first of all, your own responsibility. After all, God appeals to you as His child, right? That's where it starts. Then if somebody else knows what's going on and he does not warn that individual, then he becomes responsible too. And if we all know how things are, how bad things are in somebody's life, but nobody says anything about it, we become responsible together. Now the trouble with that is, today, we live in a very individualistic culture. And so the idea that there is some Corporate responsibility sounds weird in the ears of many people. What you are okay with is no one else's business. What you want to do, what I want to do, is not the business of the church. But in the communion of his church, God does not want us to accept or tolerate ideas that oppose his word of a way of living that ignores his will even if you personally would be comfortable with it. Remember, our God is a holy God. And the table of our covenant communion with Him is holy. That makes it a big deal whether you respect the holiness of God's table or you don't, whether it is that personally or together. That's why the church has to say, if this is how it is in your life, 
We're going to talk to you. We're going to warn you. We're going to address you about it. And, and we take our time for that. We take our time for that. We, we, we're going to press that. We're going to urge you. But in the end, if you keep doing what you're doing, you cannot be admitted. The Lord entrusted his church with the job to respect the holiness of the Lord's Supper. And people have said, well, God is holy and he, can take himself, he himself can take care of the holiness of his supper. But that ignores the fact that God has given a job to his church. If you don't want to humble yourself and you refuse to live out of God's grace in Jesus, if you profane God's covenant, you've got to be barred from the table by those who have that responsibility. After all, it's not your table, it's not my table, it's God's table. This job to make sure that the holiness of the Lord's Supper is respected implies that even in the first scenario, there is not necessarily an open access for every visitor. The fact that someone feels that he is personally okay with God does not remove the need for mutual accountability in one form or another. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, God himself comes up to you. He confirms his covenant. I will keep my word. I will keep my promise. Always. And what if someone in this same covenant says, yeah, I know. I also made promises when I did my public profession of faith so many years ago. But you know, things have changed in my life. What I believe and the way I live now is the opposite of what I promised back then. But I feel quite comfortable with it. What's the church supposed to do? Again, should we say, yeah, between you and the Lord, let it go. When we allow God's covenant to be profaned, the catechism puts it pretty strongly. His wrath is kindled against the whole congregation. Corporate responsibility, as I mentioned, is a strange concept for modern people. But that's how the Lord works. The history of Israel in the Old Testament shows that. All of Israel is in the days of Samuel. Yeah? All of Israel was punished. Why? Because of the sins of the son of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Everybody in Israel knew what was going on, and no one stopped them. So let's acknowledge the responsibility given to the church of God when he entrusted to the church the care for the holiness of God's table. However, always remember, this will only work, yeah? this will only work when each one of us is filled with awe and each one of us is filled with deep respect for God's holiness. That's where it has to start. It has to start with each one of us. After all, he, he, our God, he is the Holy One, great and glorious is his name. Amen.